And we're on. Good afternoon, everyone. And hello, Tiffany Johnson. Hi, how are you? It's great to be here. Oh, I'm good. Thank you so much. You're an author, speaker, podcast host. And over the course of your younger life, you experienced abuse, bullying, and a near-death experience. You've taken these experiences and used them to heighten your intuition, grow into your authentic self and voice, and find a love for yourself, which you use to encourage, inspire, and empower others, helping them to find their voices, trust themselves, and find their bravery. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, good. I'm always glad to hear that. I sent out a, a post uh, looking for guests, and I can't tell you how happy I am that you responded. And I'm equally elated and nervous at the same time as <laughs> this interview and talking to you, even though we've done a pre-interview. I'm just so excited to be talking to you. Thank you. Don't be nervous. <laughs> Well, I wanted to start. I do have some questions ironed out um, and listed. And I wanted to start with you left home, as we read in your bio, at 17 years old, and you began attending university. What was your vision of your life at that age? You know, I think it's a massive learning curve that we all take in those early adult years where we're trying to find who we are as adults. And I knew that I had this opportunity laid out in front of me. And when I chose to go to university, I had, I'd applied to lots of different colleges and I wasn't 100% sure. I'd got an apprenticeship as a chef, but I decided I didn't like that. I didn't want to do that. And then I got accepted into, I actually got accepted into Australia's top fine arts college. So I'm an artist as well. And so I actually thought that the letter of acceptance was a mistake. I didn't right. believe that I was good enough to go. I know. And now I'm like kicking myself. <laughs> but I I had a lot of self-doubt and um, I was very confident in that I could achieve anything and that the world was my oyster and I could achieve my dreams. But I also had a lot of self-doubt and felt like there just was a piece of me that was missing. And so I was searching for that. And that's why I chose to go to university in another state. And I thought maybe I'll find every piece of me somewhere there. I think as well, you know, we we get a bit scared about, and there's a bit of fear around, is this the thing that I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Or is this a thing that's actually going to give me the life that I want? You know, I wanted to have a family some point down the track. I wanted to have a husband sometime down the track. I wanted to be successful in whatever path I chose, but I just wasn't sure what that path was or how any of that looked in the very, very distant future. What, where did this self-doubt, when did that start? You know, I think it started from, it was only a very small part. I mean, for most people who saw me on the outside, you would never have thought that there was that. And so many of us have that imposter syndrome. We have that negative voice in our head that twitters away and who who do you think you are? Why are you good enough? I grew up in this tiny, small town and um, I'd grown there, I was there all my life growing up. And I loved my I loved my hometown and I loved my family and I loved our farm that we lived on. But small town, I think, and I'm being quite generalised here, small town can be very small town, small town ways, small town concepts. And it wasn't, yeah, there was nothing wrong with the town, there was nothing wrong with where I was, but I just felt there was more to life. And it wasn't in that space for me at that point in time. And I'd been bullied so badly as a kid. I 
when I was little in junior school, I had a group of kids pin me down on the ground. I must have been in grade four, so I was maybe nine or eight. Mm-hmm. And they pinned me down on the ground. They held me down like Jesus. I was like lying on the ground. I had a child on each limb and holding my head. And they measured parts of my body because they thought I was bigger than everybody else. And I did grow quicker than everyone else. But, you know, I went to a primary school where it was composite classes because it was so tiny in the country. So it was a split four, five and a split five, six. And it was only like five classrooms in the whole school. And they ju- I just was picked on all the time as a really, really little girl from sort of the first grade. And I was quiet and I was shy, I was introverted. And as soon as I hit high school, I was like, this is it. I've had enough of this. I'm never letting people treat me like this again. But then I still didn't feel like I really belonged. I didn't, there was like this tiny piece of me inside somewhere that I was like, I'm different. Mm. And I think a lot of us feel like that as teenagers. It's such a pivotal time in our life where we're finding who we are. I think so many people feel like that. But it, I think it really affected that whole, you're not good enough. Why would anyone accept you into finance college? Why did you even think you were good enough to apply to go to the finance college no no take this other path it sounds more secure it sounds more settled it's something that's far away and then you can really find who you actually are and find that tiny little piece of you that you feel like is missing and what happened when you did when you went to university did that happen um the first my first year of university was I lived on campus it was really fun I discovered yoga and I've been practicing yoga every day since the age of I was 18 by then and that's a long time feeling quite old (laughs) we say that (laughs) and you know and I did find you know I made different friends I met a whole new community but I also had picked a university that was also in the country and I was on college and it was a small community and it was still very similar to what I had already grown up with and it was a good sort of good stepping stone to really moving out of home and then Uh, The second year in college, uh, we had to do placement work and I went and I was working in placement and I also had a job and I was working at a coffee machine in this cafe and uh, life was very different again then. I'd stepped into another phase of life. It was a new environment again. I was living somewhere different again. I was meeting new people again and I thought maybe these are the, this is, this is what life's meant to be like. I'm 19 now, I'm, you know, really starting to venture out into the world, leaving that nest and the security of home. And and that's when I met a man that changed my life. And then when I saw him standing at that coffee machine and my heart stopped, I mean, do you remember that first time you see someone and you, <gasps> it takes your breath away. Right. <laughs> yeah. You have to catch it. Yeah, you really do. And I never experienced anything like that. You know, I'd had boyfriends in high school and all that sort of stuff, but it wasn't that intense grown-up love or lust or whatever you want to call it. I had never had that feeling before. And I think at that point I thought, this is the missing piece. Really? You saw him and you thought this is what will complete who I am and what I'm supposed to be? It was just, it it was also the sense of that this is this feeling that I've been missing in my life. This is what I want. This is, this is it. And And that relationship didn't, 
didn't keep that for very long. No, it didn't. It was only about three months. We moved in together within a week. Wow. And Elizabeth, yeah, too fast. And Elizabeth Gilbert always says, um, you know, when you've been in that really passionate relationship, how did that work out for you? And generally speaking, when you're in that intense, intense, passionate relationships, they often do not end up being the whole fulfilling, Mm -hmm. real, true relationship. And this was very far from that. But I was still 19. I was so so naive. I was so young and influenced and by him and he became incredibly manipulative and it went to a toxic, heated mess and I was so far away from my family. I was so far away from any of my support networks. I was away from uni now. I was away from home and I had no idea how to get out of it. He essentially became your whole world. Yeah. And I just kept thinking, you know, because I'd found this piece, I kept thinking if I change, it'll go back to what it was because I'm Mm -hmm. wanting to hold on to that thing. And if I do this and if I become better and if I fix it, and I think so many women or people, it doesn't have to be just women, they do that in these relationships and they have these circles and these patterns of how there's the honeymoon period and then there's a toxicity and then there's a sorry and then there's the honeymoon again and everything's beautiful and you think, yes, I've changed, I've fixed it. And then it just keeps going around and around in this horrendous wheel of torture. And I really, I really had no idea how to get out of it. I became anorexic. I went down to 40 kilos. I had bones sticking out where I didn't know bones were at that point in time. I would not eat for weeks on end because I thought maybe if I was, he was very vain and really cared about how he looked and I thought, well, if maybe if I'm skinnier, he'll love me more and he'll be nicer to me. Mm. And that's not how it works and that's not real love. No, not at all. No. Um, I had huge anxiety. I had that self-doubt that was this tiny little voice took over my entire being. And did you, I mean, you were going through all of, all of this hardship and this heartache and were you aware at the time and and at some level of consciousness, what his toxic behavior, what that impact was on you? It's a really great question. You know, I did, I knew, I did know on some level, but I just desperately wanted to fix it. I wanted to fix him so badly. I wanted it to be what it was to start with so intensely that I just kept trying to change who I was and I lost all of me. That one piece that I went looking for in the whole process of all of that, every single piece of me was gone. Why do you think that we as people feel like if to fix someone else, we have to break ourselves and we don't even realize we're breaking ourselves we just mm. feel like if is it if we change enough that'll impact the environment that impacts them that helps them yeah i think so and i think we also have this underlying wanting to there's that whole people pleasing as well that a lot of us have that we and that looking for acceptance and belonging and when we are going through these relationships And it doesn't have to be just in an intimate relationship. It can be any form of relationship. It can be within your community group. It can be within a friendship group or with a particular person, even within our own families. 
I think our longing to be, and I think this dates all the way back to the beginning of mankind, is that when we're longing to be part of that community and longing to feel loved, ultimately that's what we're really searching for. We will do anything to bring that feeling back again or to even bring that feeling into our own being at the risk of losing who we authentically are. What was that moment? Or when was that moment when you had finally decided enough was enough? We'd had a death in our family. My aunt had died and I was finally allowed to go back home. And so I drove a long way back home, about 12 hours, I think it was. And when I got home and I looked in the mirror in my childhood bedroom, when I saw this girl that I did not recognise, I... You know, my hair was falling out. It had gone completely flat and straight because I was so stressed. It, I was so, so thin. And I just remember standing there staring at myself. I stripped off. When, there was no one home when I got home. And so I stripped off and stood in my bedroom and looked in the mirror at who I had become. And I was appalled. And the shame that I felt for having allowed that to happen then really came hit home. Big time. What was your family's reaction? Excuse me. My family knew that there was something wrong, but I never wanted to let them down. And there's that people pleasing again. I just, I wanted them to be proud of me. I didn't want them to think that someone had been mean to me again. And so that whole facade that I'd always put on, I put it on even more. And I just would wear baggier clothes and, you know, of course they could tell that there was something severely wrong and they talked to me and they tried to get it out of me but I would not say a word. And I decided that I needed to go back and end it. I got a bit more strength about me. I started eating again. I was starting to feel more self-confident by being around my family and so I drove back to the pretend happy home that I'd had in this relationship and I found him in bed with two other women. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was great because because it was my out. It was finally my out. I could finally, it gave me permission to finally leave. And they were my friends too, actually, two of my friends. (laughs) And and that was the, and and, in your mind, that was the justification. What, yeah. When when you saw that, when you walked in and you saw that, was there this, I don't know, belief that, well, no one can fault me now. Like n- this relationship not working out can't be my fault now. Yeah, that's exactly right. So how long do you think you would have stayed had that not happened? I was pretty determined to end it when I went back, but... He was very good at manipulating me. Mm. He knew every button to press. Had that not been the case, I don't know how successful I would have been. But mm. but that was definitely my, it gave me even more power to go, enough is enough. I'm out of here and this is not okay. That was it. So it was very much a blessing that. Really was a blessing. That you walked in. Yeah. So what did you do after you left? What was your first movement out of that relationship? Well, the first thing I did was I went to a resource centre 
and got my CV up to date and went and applied to every possible far away place that I could think of. And I got a job on a tropical island uh, in Australia, which was beautiful, 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 beautiful. And I got off the plane and the sweat was dripping off me. It was like hitting a wall of humidity. And I was like, right, I'm starting again. I'm doing this. I'm moving on. I didn't trust anybody. I was still riddled with shame. I mm. had this enormous amount of imposter syndrome, the self-doubt, the negative talk, and I drank far too much to hide all of the hurt and all of the suffering that I was going through. Um, and I was working multiple jobs on this island to earn some money to work out whatever it was I was going to do next. I knew I needed some money. So I was working on the boats and I was working in front office and I was working in the restaurants and I was working doing events and I sort of worked anywhere there was a shift, I would take it. Right. And, yeah, like I just was working really, really long hours and um, I was coming home from and the hours I wasn't working, I was drinking basically. It's wonder I survived. <laughs> my liver <laughs> but oh my I you know it was just it was that was the only way I knew how to cope I still hadn't told anybody the level of the toxicity of the relationship I'd never told a soul and I carried this burden so heavily so so heavily on my shoulders and I was so angry at myself so mm. angry at myself for allowing that to happen again um and then he found me on the island and I didn't, I don't know. I actually don't know how he found me, but he did find me. And I heard the phone, the phone had called in our hallway in the dormitory where we were staying and a person knocked on my door and they said, there's a phone call for you. And I went up and I took the phone call and I heard his breathing and I knew before he'd even said a word that it was him. And I thought if I take, he knows I'm here now because this girl's come and got me. Oh yeah, I'll go and get her. Right. So I was like, okay, and the fear, the fear that I felt was like I almost, I actually crumbled down the side of the wall and I thought if I take this call, I might be able to keep him at bay. But if I don't take the call, he knows I'm here and he'll come after me. So I took the call. The thing was I'd almost been raped on the island. I'd been walking home from work one night and two guys were following me and I somehow managed to escape, which was absolutely terrifying. So when I took a phone call from him, which was literally the next day after that incident had happened, I he said he was going overseas and did I want to go with him? And I said yes, because I thought it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. And I no longer felt safe on the island at all. And that fear was like, I was like I was living in a sea of fear that just was lapping at my chin and no matter which direction I took, I felt that I wasn't safe. And I still didn't want to go home because I thought if I go home, I'm a failure, I haven't succeeded, I still am lost, I don't know what I'm doing. What, what is there for me on the farm? I don't want to be a farmer. What do I do? I can't go home. I don't want them to know. I don't want anyone to know the truth the truth and it was just this horrible it was like a big hole inside of me and I just tried to fill it with everything else except for what it needed which was actually love 
and healing. There was no yeah. space in any of this for you to heal. No. And so no. you went overseas with him. Where, yes. where over, where overseas? We went, we went to the UK. Oh. Yeah. So and he was from the UK. And what happened when you went overseas? Yeah, we, we got there. The wheels started to turn the same old, same old story. And he was very good at manipulating me again. And, you know, the promises of love and marriage and, I'm always going to take care of you and I'm sorry. It's that, that honeymoon period again in that cycle. And, um, you know, when we get married this and when we get married that and it's going to be amazing and we'll buy a house and let's open a joint bank account together and everything's going to be fine and I promise I'll take care of you forever. And I really just wanted to have that same experience that I'd had when we first, first met. I was still holding on to that in hope that maybe he's changed, maybe things are going to be okay and um, stupidly, I did open a bank account with him. And because I trusted, I wanted desperately to trust him that it was right. going to be okay. Um, and then one day I was, I knew I needed to get out though because I could see the pattern starting again. And I was thinking about my next steps. What am I going to do? And the isolation and the sensation of alone, it's a very dark place to be in. And which I'm sure a lot of people at the moment are feeling that. And it's just, it's really horrible and really difficult to move through and overcome. And anyway, I found this, I was looking through my bag and I found a letter and it was addressed to him and it was covered in love hearts, beautiful colored love and it stunk of really bad perfume. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what is in that letter? And he was off doing something else. And so I actually, I was like, I have to know. And so I opened the letter. Like this was like the naughtiest thing I'd ever done in my life. <laughs> read someone oh my else's God. mail. But I couldn't help myself. I was like, I have to know what's in that letter. And so I read this letter. Oh, my God. It, it's actually, I've put the, the, I'll never forget the words of this letter. I was like, I can't wait to be with you again. It was from his married lover back in Australia who he had then sent all this money to for her to buy a ticket to meet him overseas and was they were planning to how they were going to get rid of me and I was like enough is enough and then I kind of the penny dropped and I was like hang on where did he get the money to send her for the airplane ticket oh my god oh my god anyway I did phone banking back then because this is like 21 years ago and yeah all the money was gone so I left he used your money left. yeah he used your money to fund his affair yeah. that they yeah. were going to then decide how to yes. end the relationship with you uh-huh okay yeah yeah that's that's it we're, we're out <laughs> we're done we're so we're done, done. <laughs> i know so at that point i'd uh, I'd actually got a job in Scotland and I grabbed my backpack and hopped on a bus and I went up to Scotland and I thought it doesn't matter I'll start again and there was accommodation mm. where I was going to be working but when I got there the hotel was disgusting and I mean so I mean it was it was so disgusting and there were rat droppings all in the bedroom and the walls were covered in mold and I thought I'm actually going to die here I can't take this job I can't take this job I cannot stay here like a, there was it was I'd never seen anything so disgusting. It really needed to be condemned and closed. Right. And 
Uh, so I walked back into the village and I called my mum and I was howling my eyes out. And remember, they still don't know the intensity of how bad this relationship was. And I told my mum that it hadn't worked out. I didn't know what to do. I was going to come home. This has not worked at all. And she said to me, you can't be on the other side of the world and have had a terrible time. Go and book a Kentucky tour. Go and meet people your own age. He was a lot older than me as well. And go and, book, but go, and, go and meet people your own age. Go out and live. See the world, she said. Go and book a Kentucky tour. Go to a hotel tonight. Make yourself a good cup of tea. Don't go to that disgusting place you were going to work. Go to a nice place. Go and have a shower. Get them to do all your washing. Get them to ring me. I'll cover it for tonight. And then tomorrow you're getting a tour. And I was like, <laughs> like I'm stuck in the highlands of Scotland. <laughs> and she, What else am I going to do? I'm homeless. I've got no money. <laughs> and what she wanted was for you, you are, you're somewhere that can be beautiful. I want you to experience something beautiful. Yeah. That's what she wanted for you. Yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. So I did, as my mother said, because mother's no best. Remember that, all people out there, mother's no best. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then the next day I booked a Kentucky tour. And then a What's week a later. Kentucky tour? What is a Kentucky tour, it's a bus tour. So it's targeted at 18 to 35-year-olds. It's mostly sort of young 20s people. And it's back then um, it was huge, particularly for Australians. It was a massive, massive company. And um, you would do like a speed dating of countries. So you would go like, especially through Europe, they do it in the States and Canada as well, but really, really um, big, big time in um, the UK. I don't think it's so big as what it used to be back then, but it was like a party tour. It was known as like, go and have a really good time. It'd be amazing. No, see it. So you spend, you know, two days in France, two days in Spain, two days in Italy, and you'd stay at like cabins. And you would, um, like, everything was organised for you. And you'd, so you go on a bus and you, like, hop around, bus tour, stay here, do, like, that a speed amazing. dating of sites. Yeah, it was. It's amazing. Everything's organised. Breakfast, lunches, dinners, <laughs> off you go, do this, do that. It's all organised for you. So you're like, okay, great, I'm just going to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even, like, just getting to, even getting to London to get on the bus Every single step of that trip, there were stop signs from the universe saying, go home. Do not really? go anywhere. Go home. Trying to book the Kentucky tour took hours because the girls in the travel agent didn't understand my accent. I didn't know what a Kentucky tour was. It was hilarious. I look back at it now and I'm like, oh. <laughs> which that I talk about first. that in the book. <laughs> that was the first alarm bell. That was but, the first alarm bell. But yeah. you, you, you went through all of that and you actually got on the tour I and did. where did the tour take you so we started in london and that in itself was an episode in getting on the bus and getting there and then we went to france we went to paris first and you know it was kind of like being at school again because it's all kids my age so by now i'm 21 everyone has gone on the tour with a group of friends so you've got all your different groups even though we're from all over the world, we've got all the different groups. It was seriously like walking on a bus in high school. And I was the new kid and I was completely alone and I did not know a single soul. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I, 
and there was it was there was a hold up in me getting on the bus and we were actually held up by two hours because I didn't have the right paperwork because it hadn't arrived to me in time because I booked it a week before in wow. another country with no postal address so it was like this they couldn't cope with too many differences it was it was an administration nightmare for them and all these kids sitting on this bus waiting for two hours for this stupid girl to get on the bus so when I got on the bus my very their very first impression of me is that I'm the girl who can't get her act together and I just wanted to crawl under a rock and die there was cheers from the boys in the back of the bus it was you know people all people weren't throwing things at me but <laughs> had they had fruit or something in the middle ages I would have been you would imagine like, it was bad and so that was another thing looking back you're like maybe I shouldn't do this yeah like, hold on. maybe not that's right but you did you you pushed through that and you you went you're doing the tour and you went to Switzerland as part yeah. of that tour that's correct and then from there when you and I love that you guys call it holiday. I wish that the U.S. would say that. It makes things sound more special when you're like, I'm on holiday. It makes it sound like it's supposed to be fun and relaxing. <laughs> um, but you, when you were in Switzerland, you still had that gut feeling, that premonition yeah. almost yeah. that oh, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Can you, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I certainly can. I'd had that sensation the whole way through. So even though there were also these other moments where I was like, perhaps I shouldn't be doing this, like getting on the bus. There were many, many others, the bus kept breaking down, people were getting injured, people were getting sick. There was all sorts of things that it wasn't just me. I noticed it wasn't just me. And even at times the bus had broken down in Austria and we were on the side of a mountain and it was like standing on top of a mountain in the sound of music. It was, it was amazing. It was breathtaking. But this was the third time the bus had broken down. And my friend, I'd made this beautiful friend who's now still my best friend to this day. Mm. And we were sitting next to each other on the side of the road and she's like, why does the bus keep breaking down? Why do all these bad things keep happening to us? Like it was uncanny how many bad things were happening. And I was like, I don't know. But when we were talking about that, my stomach was like doing these butterfly knots. And they had done that since the time I'd got on that plane to go overseas. But I just thought it was because I'd made a stupid decision going back with this guy. Mm -hmm. And that sense of self and that had started, I'd slowly started to unravel all of that. And so I thought, well, maybe this sensation that I've got is just about my journey and me and learning who I am and accepting me and the day before the accident happened we went up to Jungfrau which is Switzerland's or the world it's actually the world's highest train station and it's at a glacier and I had never in my life seen snow and it was the first, it was the first time I even held snow and I remember standing on this mountain and that sensation had washed away from me. And I'd been carrying it throughout this whole tour, the whole time. I mean, there were snippets of time when it had vanished because something wonderful had happened, like meeting my best friend, Cassandra. That was an amazing moment. It was an instant connection. And I was standing there holding the snow. I was by myself 
and I looked at these mountains and I thought if these mountains can stand the test of time, if they can withstand blizzards and dinosaurs and man and everything else that comes with it, these are billions of years old. If these mountains can still be standing here, then I can do this. I can accept everything that I've done in my life and I can love who I am and I accept who I am and it's okay that all these things have happened and it's okay that I've made mistakes and it's okay that it's okay that everything's happened because now I'm really I'm here and I'm holding snow like this is amazing and I finally felt acceptance and love of myself and that was what I'd been missing that was my missing puzzle piece it was this most liberating moment so overwhelming and wonderful and I I was yeah it was just so special and I had no other sensations at that point of bad feelings something's going to happen when I woke up the next morning it had come I'd woken up the next morning it was the first time I hadn't had any alcohol that night I didn't need it anymore because I'd found what I'd been looking for I'd been I'd found me and I'd accepted me it was that self-acceptance and I'd had the most amazing time with all these new friends that I'd made who I'm still friends with and I felt accepted of myself but I felt accepted by another bunch of people warts and all they'd seen some really bad things that I'd done and behaved incredibly poorly and they still loved me. Like we all were having, like it was, it was amazing. It was this what I had been looking for. And when we're about to go canyoning, that sensation of something really bad happening was in overdrive. In overdrive. And so first, if you could explain what canyoning is and then what that overdrive feeling you were experiencing. Yeah. Canyoning is an adventure sport. It's a combination of rock climbing, uh, jumping, you use harnesses and ropes. So you're in a canyon or um, like a creek bed, a waterway down the side of a mountain and you're wearing um, helmet, life vest, full um, wetsuit, little water shoe things and you're making your way down through the water in between the rocks and you might be scrambling for rocks, you might slide, you might jump, you might use, um, so there'll be um, harnesses and things so you might um, climb up, rock climb up a bit. So it's sort of a combination of all different sort of adventure type sports in this one space. There's no boats or there's no kayaks or anything. You're just using your body to make your way down through water. And generally it's it's not white water, like white water rafting, but it's not just like an easy stream. It's not like a pleasant, it, there is, you know, it might be a four metre jump or you might have to climb behind a waterfall. So it is an extreme sport. Is it relatively safe, even though it's an extreme sport, if you're in good physical health? Yeah, it's not meant to be as dangerous as it is. It would be up there with, like, hang gliding or skydiving or rock oh. climbing or abseiling. It's in that sort of category. And But when you arrived to go canyoning and y'all are in groups, you you said that that, that feeling of no... Oh. was an overdrive but overdrive. you ignored it you pushed yeah. through it I did and that so we were at the company adventure world was the company that was taking us canyoning so like when you would go whitewater rafting you would go to a company that would take you in the rafts and would take you you would have a guide 
and they would guide you and, and down the river. So it's the same sort of thing with canyoning. You go to the company, there's, you have guides and they lead you down and they show you what to do and they help you as you make your way down, um, especially for a tour group type thing. I mean, I'm sure there's people who do go canyoning on their own that are experienced, but um, like, like any sort of thing like that. So we, um, we were standing there getting ready and we had all our gear on, you know, we had our helmets, we had our life vests and this, it's like overdrive butterflies for me. I think a lot of people experience it differently. And as I've got older, it's become even more intense. Sometimes when some, I feel like there's something really bad is about to happen, I almost collapse sometimes now. And I can't speak and I can barely move. And I just, I was like, something is wrong something is wrong and I think we all have the ability to have that sensation I don't think that that is a woohoo thing I think that every single person on this earth has the ability to listen to their intuition when there's a message coming to you from a higher power of some description and I was standing there and I've got this turbulence happening in my stomach a feeling of foreboding is probably the best way of describing it and I was like I don't know I don't know what it is. And I trusted that the guides and that the company knew what they were doing and everything would be fine. Right. The girl standing next to me, we're on a log and I didn't know her. She was from another tour group. And because there was a whole bunch, there was two tour groups and you could, this was like an extracurricular activity. So you paid more money to go and do this. She was from the other bus group and she was, she had a wedding ring on. I was standing there watching her. And her friend said to her, what are you doing? And she was putting a Band-Aid over her wedding ring. Mm -hmm. And she said to her friend, well, just in case anything happens, I just want people to know that I was married. So I'm putting a wedding ring, I'm putting a Band-Aid over my wedding ring. And I stood there and I thought, I didn't say anything because I didn't know her. But I thought, why would you come on a Kentucky tour if you were married? Because it was mostly, you know, targeted at singles. She must be having a really fun time with her husband. And two, why does she think something's going to go wrong? Does she feel like I feel? Mm. And, you know, she's actually never been found. Her body is somewhere at the bottom of the lake with her wedding rings on. It's so sad. It's just so sad. Can you Can you walk us through what what happened on on that day so after we were all suited up and we were given instructions of what we needed to do we got onto mini buses and we went up to the entry point to the canyon and we were staggered into four different groups and i was feeling this like really heavy overwhelming feeling and i thought i'm getting car sick the bad feeling is cussing and I'm just going to go to sleep while we head up to the mountain. And when we got there, it had started to spit, drizzle, and my hair had gone really, really fuzzy. So when it rains, well, when rain is coming, my hair turns out like a poodle. Like instantly <laughs> reacts to that yeah. humidity, that, that change. That's it. It's like a human barometer. It's like, oh, it's about to rain. And um, it was really dark. Like by the time we got to the top of the mountain we were entering, it was like night. It was so black. It was the afternoon. It was so, so black. And I was like, I know there's rain coming because this never lies. 
I just mm-hmm. didn't realise that where the storm was was at the top of the mountain. This is three kilometre high mountains, 3,400 something feet, I think, from memory. Maybe more than that. Is that a lot in feet? I don't know the That's conversion. That's a lot. But yeah. That so is a lot. we're talking in the middle of the Alps. So where the storm was was at the very, very top of the mountain. And what had happened was there was a natural dam wall that had started where the top of the the river had st- the creek had started, and the storm was so severe that it broke that natural dam wall, and a flash flood was coming down the mountain, and we didn't know. And as we entered into the canyon, you know the water was amazing. It was beautiful. It was crystal clear. I'd never seen anything so. So much like the Garden of Eden, as you would imagine it to be. It was lush and it was ferns. I've seen a lot of rain rainforests, and I've I've done a lot of different forests in my life. I've travelled a lot around Australia and different parts of the world, but I'd never seen anything so pristine, so clean. The air was clean. The water was clean. It was just vibrant, and I was mesmerised by the beauty of this place, and. We were having an amazing time. It was so much fun. We were all having an amazing time. We were jumping. You were yahoo. And, you know, the guides was had said to us, we're not 100% sure whether we should go in or not today, but don't worry. There are exit points all along the way. And if we need to get out, we will. And we were like, okay, we trust you. Like, right. let's just go for it. But I still had that bad feeling. And I kept pushing it down, thinking it doesn't matter because I'm having a great time and this is amazing and I trust the guides. There's exit points all the way throughout. Well, there's exit points. That's it. We're like, we're cool here, people. Like, we'll just keep going. Then we got to the middle of the canyon and I noticed that the water had instantly changed within a matter of moments from that beautiful crystal clear water to a murky, muddy brown. And growing up in the country, you learn weather patterns and you know when there's floods, you know when there's droughts. And I knew something was wrong. And I said to my friend next to me, why is the water rising? Why has it turned murky? And it had gone from my ankle to my knee within a matter of moments, seconds. Mm. And she's like, I don't know. And then our guide yelled out, we need to move fast. Where we were in the canyon, there was nowhere for us to go. There was no exit point. There was no ropes. We were stuck in a very narrow, there was boulders super high on either side and we were in single file it couldn't have been more than I don't know 70 centimeters wide this part of the canyon you almost had to like shuffle through right and I took that jump I was the only one to take that jump I got to the edge of the boulder and normally when I am about to get into like a pool or go for a swim at the sea it takes me ages like I've got to test the water I stand there and I like think about it and think about it some more and test the water again. Like I'm really slow to get in, <laughs> really slow. <laughs> and I've been like that forever. And at this point and I was standing on the edge and I just I just went for it. I was like, I have to go now. Something inside me knew that I had to take that jump and it was like finally I was listening to my intuition I had to get out of there. As I entered into the water, I the sound was thunder it was so loud and so overwhelming and 
just so loud, just so noisy, the noisiest thing you can imagine. And as I came up for air, because my life jacket had brought me up, there was a guide waiting for me in that waterhole and he reached out his hand for me and our hands slipped past each other and I was sucked under the rapids. And it was in that moment that the wall of water came down and killed all of my friends. How many of them were there with you? There were um, three of us out of a group of 12 died, uh, survived, so everyone else died. So the so whole, nine. the group of 12 and you and two others. So there was me and two others that survived. How did you, because you missed that, that first moment of, of being pulled out of that exit, mm. of that first exit. Um, how did you finally get out? So when I was first pulled under, I had no idea what had happened, but I knew that I was, I knew that I was in bad water. I didn't know I was in a flood. I didn't know I was in a flash flood. I didn't know. All I knew was that I was in bad water. And my father's head, my father's voice came into my head. And I never forget this because I was instantly dragged under and my arms and legs were going everywhere. And I was like being in a washing machine. And I heard his voice say to me, if ever you get caught in flood waters, just relax and stay calm. Water is stronger than you. You can never fight it. And so I just let go. I surrendered. I only thing I thought about was getting air and just relaxing. And I literally just went completely limp. You went to, I can only control what I can control. And that's trying to get to the surface and get as much air. And you, you went down that Canyon hitting branches and rocks and you were getting Body. beat up really bad. Really bad. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Impossible and that's about the tsunami, but there's a scene in there where you at the very end, I think it is, where you see her being thrashed around in the water and it was like that. Yeah, it was horrendous. So I kept coming up for snippets of air when I could and I just, I just let go. I didn't think of anything. I didn't, wasn't scared. I wasn't, I wasn't fighting it. I literally almost like going into a meditative state and just let go. And then eventually I was pushed up into a giant boulder by a huge log and it crushed me in between the boulder and the log. And that was the first time I actually saw what I was amongst. And I looked to my right up the cows, facing back up towards the canyon, and I saw my friends, lifeless bodies floating over the rapids and I knew instantly that they were dead. And then I looked to my left and I saw the bank and that beautiful Garden of Eden was just there sitting there waiting. But it was so far away I knew that I could never make it. And it was in that moment that I had to make the most important decision of my life. I had to decide whether or not I would stay by this boulder, potentially have another log come down on me or another something hit me, knock me unconscious and I would drown or I could let go. And I had my life like played out to me 
like a snapshot of my life. I saw me being bullied as a kid, lying on the ground with all those kids holding me down. I saw me as a teenager feeling like I didn't belong and not part of the cool group and I was different and I couldn't work out what the parts of me were. I saw a picture of me um, of me with that terrible, terrible boyfriend who just did not treat me the way I deserved to be treated. And then I saw an image of me standing on that mountain with the snow. And I knew that I wanted to be her. I wanted to be that person. That was me. That was all of me. That was everything that I accepted about me. And I didn't want to die having been that person. I wanted to be the person that I had accepted and loved. And that was all of me. And so, so you started fighting for her. Yeah, I did. I did. I chose her. I chose that life. And I wiggled a bit and got out from the log and was sucked under the current again and was washed away further downstream. And I kept coming up for snippets of air when I could, but there came a point when I just could not hold on any longer and I thought, this is it. This is, I have to take another breath and I'm going to have to take a breath and it's going to be water. And I prayed. I prayed to God and I prayed to my aunt who died those years before and I said dear God dear Annie die please don't let me die because if I die mum won't cope and I was still thinking of someone else I was still thinking about people pleasing but it was amazing in that moment because I sporadically burst up out of the water and I don't know whether it was a giant wave or the hand of God, I have no idea how that happened, but I sporadically burst up out of the water and my whole torso was up out of the water and I was just about to go over this absolutely enormous waterfall. It was enormous. And there's a photo of it on my website. And it's happened, someone actually happened to take a photo of it. And um, I went over that. It was like a free fall flight, like jumping out of an aeroplane, I guess. I actually don't know how I survived. And I ended up in this tiny little alcove and I came up for air and I was exhausted. I didn't know you could be that exhausted. I was just oh, so exhausted. And so I tried to move my legs, but my legs wouldn't work. And so I used my arms to make my way over to the edge. And I kept holding on to snippets of grass when I could to try and pull myself up, but I couldn't get up. There was a massive log stuck through my life vest. And so I had to wiggle back down and try and yank it out and a pair of feet arrived at where my eye height was and um, they grabbed onto my life vest on the shoulders and yanked me up and pulled me out and when I looked up at that person it was one of my friends that had survived. It wasn't a guide it was someone in your in your groups a new friend that you had made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what was happening in your mind? You were so tired and you had to do, you were, okay, there's, here's the way out, but then there, I mean, talk about metaphorical weighing you down. This log is, is Mm. stuck in your, in your life vest. And it's still, it's, it's asking you for more. You need to give me more before you can break free. Like everything you'd been through wasn't hard enough. Just give me one more, you have to move this log. How did, what was going on in your mind? How did you, what took over? At that point was probably the first time I felt fearful. I 
I was very scared that the water would keep rising because I had watched floods my whole life living on our farm and I knew the force of the water and I knew how fast it could rise and I was desperate to get out at that point because I thought if if that water rises and if it comes into this little alcove and takes me away again, I'm done. There's no way I can survive again. I just cannot. I, I don't have anything left. I have to get out now or it's never. Now. That's right. And then as I was lying there panting, someone, I didn't know who it was, appeared, just appeared and said, come with me and I'll take you to safety. And so I followed him. I actually got up like a soldier and ordered everybody around and adrenaline took over. And then I started following this person up to the top of the mountain. It was like a mudslide by this stage. So we're hanging onto trees and ropes and anything we could get to. And then eventually we got to the top of the road and the person that had led us to the top of the road sort of grabbed me to help me get onto the road. And I looked at him and it was the guide in the water that had tried to grab my hand and he too had survived. I I have so many other questions. I think I'm going to start blending a, a few. Can I um, just do one thing? You can absolutely I, can. I think my battery's going to run out on my laptop. I want to plug you in. Hold on. Okay. Sorry. No, no, no. You're fine. That was bad timing, wasn't it? Well, we've actually gone over, but I have to tell you, I, I, I expected as much. I mean, your story and. Sorry, everybody. I could probably okay. just sit here and talk to you all day if I'm being honest. Um, but yeah, and, and also we, we did have a, an audience member and she's having, she's a podcast host as well. It's a very similar mm -hmm. podcast to what I do. And, um. She she has to hop off because she has to do a live with her with her sponsor. And she just wanted me to let you know that you are amazing, that your story has left her speechless. And she just wants to tell you, thank you, Tiffany, for being you and here to tell your story, sending you so many hugs and love. You are so powerful. Thank so you. I wanted to give you that. And I'm not going to start crying just yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to cry yet. Okay. So you survived that you lost, you found these friends that at the very beginning of the trip, you just imagined probably were so irritated and that you imagined throwing fruit at you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, by this point, when you guys had hit um, Switzerland and we're going canyoning, you developed these very strong relationships mm -hmm. and these friendships and not just with them, but with yourself. And you found yourself and then this horrific, mm. everything that you had been foreboding, it actually, it, it, it turns out to be with cause. And it turns out to be that you are actually, um, with your intuition, knowing something of this magnitude was about to shape the life of mm. you and so many others. Yeah. How long, so when you were pulled out, I, I imagine that you had severe injuries, but you write in your, in your biography that it wasn't until after you returned home mm -hmm. that you received 
real medical treatment and a full diagnosis of all of your in injury. What yeah. were those first few months like? Horrific. Horrific. <laughs> so painful. Getting on a plane with multiple broken bones and a pancreas that doesn't work anymore and PTSD and survivor's guilt and, you know, the tissue damage that I had to my body was I actually wanted to die. Like I, I remember getting onto that plane to come home and I, you know that bit when you're getting on a plane and it's just before you actually get onto the plane and sometimes there's like a burst of air from outside. It's often like a really change of you can feel the difference. And I remember standing there going, why did you not take me? Dying would have been so much easier than this. And then I got on this plane and they offered a glass of champagne and I downed it in one gulp trying to ease the pain. And I hadn't had any alcohol since for ages by this stage. And... Uh, I just tried to sleep. I just slept. And it's quite a, it's a lot of that of it is blurry. So I actually had a broken leg. My tibia was split in half between my ankle and my knee. So I had shattered the whole way up my leg. I don't know how I climbed up the side of a mountain with a broken leg. Then I, and not only that, I was walking around for I, Yeah. Yeah. Then I had four broken ribs. The ribs actually hurt more than the leg because I couldn't breathe. And I, they weren't just shattered, they were snapped off. So when that log had rammed me in the stomach, it actually had shattered my ribs. There was nothing left. And so I, you know, every breath, because intercostals that are in between each rib, affects, works in time with your lungs. And so every time I take a breath, I'd be in agony. And that's like a lot. <laughs> How many times do we breathe in a day? A lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, so that was unbearable. That was really painful. And... My legs looked like, um, you know, in those like NCIS type TV shows and they someone's been murdered and they show photos on the police table and it's like this unrecognisable person because they've been so badly beaten. I look like that. That's what my body looked like. And and then you're you're walking through airports and you're handling luggage and you're mm -hmm. doing altitude changes. And yeah. how long did it take you to recover once you got home? Months. It took a long time to recover. Um, so I have diabetes on type one diabetic on an insulin pump. My pancreas got damaged when the log rammed me in the stomach. So that's, I mean, you don't, you don't get a holiday from diabetes. So it's with me. It's been buzzing while I've been talking to you. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it's, it's manageable and I have an amazing life and I have a good mindset. So that's okay. And then, um, my legs, you know, the soft tissue damage to my legs has been problematic. It's caused me a lot of trouble. My feet caused me a lot of trouble. My jaw was dislocated. So um, I used to sing professionally for years before um, all of this happened and I can't reach the high notes anymore because my jaw won't open enough. I've had surgery on that a few times since. Um, still causes me a lot of trouble, my jaw. Uh, because, it, because it was so long between... When it all happened and, and when, when I got getting, diagnosed. And getting care. Yeah. I have to say, so, I mean, you, you had that moment on top of the mountain holding, holding snow. I think just from hearing your story, I feel like that moment 
kind of refilled your strength tank mm. enough just a, just a little bit do you believe that to 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 help give you had that yeah, moment just... never occurred how much harder would it have been to now deal with PTSD and and survivor's guilt and injury and complete life altering injuries yeah and it was really interesting because when i was going through all the ptsd and the survivor's guilt and all of that mental health stuff i didn't have the anxiety i didn't have the lack of self-belief anymore i didn't have imposter syndrome anymore i didn't have the shame anymore and having let go of that shame because i'd had that moment on the mountain where i finally accepted everything was freeing and I forgave myself and that was the biggest thing that I needed to do. And now I needed to forgive myself again in my survivor's guilt for being spared. Mm. And I knew that I'd done it before and I knew I could do it again. It just was going to take time. And it took a long, long time for those wounds to heal. And my recovery from the accident, I it took a long time for me to actually get out of bed because I was in so much pain and finally my mother was like I don't believe the doctors in Switzerland there is something seriously wrong with you I'm taking you to the doctors here and you don't have a choice like I was being really stubborn I was angry I was so angry I was angry that I'd survived I was angry that they died I was angry at the world for that it happened I was angry that there were 200 also journalists outside our chalet and we couldn't do anything I was angry that there were journalists up and down our street now I mean I live out in the middle of nowhere there was still journalists everywhere because it was international news it was getting in the new york times it was on the bbc it was in the guardian it was everywhere and i finally accepted and and went and to the doctor and that's what we discovered but the you know the recovery my jo my doctor said to me at the time when you're ready you will know when you're ready to get the right help but there's no mm -hmm. point because i was so angry and so dark there's no point in trying to go and get help until you're ready to leave the house, basically. And if it gets to a point where you, because I wasn't suicidal, I just was angry. Right. And. And closed, I, I imagine. Yeah. Like, I, I just didn't want to talk to anybody. And my mum and dad were so worried about me. And my mum made a phone call to a girl she'd never met. And that was the only person, if I ever spoke. I'd talk about Cassandra and Cassandra is my best friend and we met on the bus in the middle of Tuscany surrounded by sunflowers <laughs> and everyone was asleep on the bus and I was looking at this view going you're all missing it like I want you to all see this and I looked up in the bus to see if anyone could share this amazement in these fields and fields of sunflowers but everyone was asleep and Cassandra was awake and so I and so she came up and sat next to me. And I'd never spoken to her before. And we'd already been, you know, Spain and France and the south of France and Paris. And, and and we just connected. And we experienced the sunflowers together. And it was amazing and beautiful. And this open, incredible relationship. And it also started to fill up that piece of me because it was that acceptance. And I think my word is acceptance. And the whole of it was the biggest lesson that I learned. And so my mum, in her desperation, got Cassandra's number and rang her. And Cassandra lived in another state to me. Her cousin had died in the disaster and she'd literally just come from her cousin's funeral. 
and it took a long time and things for the bodies to be shipped home and because there was um, investigations it was under a crime scene and it was very complicated and so Cassandra jumped on a plane and came to be by my side and we finally I finally connected I finally started shedding tears just seeing her face and knowing that knowing that love and acceptance of everything and not that my parents didn't they of course they did they love me they're wonderful parents but they hadn't been there and I thought how can I ever how can I explain how do I have the words to tell someone what I've just been through I just couldn't even find the place to start and they really they didn't really know any how bad it was until they read my book Right. And even then, I mean, I think that's the biggest disconnect with those that struggle with PTSD and the people that love them and want to help is there's not a way to explain it unless you were there. And so to have your friend come down and, you know, she had been a part of this experience with you and for her to sit by your side and hold your hand and love you and accept you that that help that helped you. Yeah, that was the beginning of my healing. Yeah. Well, I want to get to guest. I, I want to get to guest questions, but you know, yeah. you you ended up writing a book called yes. "Brave Enough Now." Yes. Um, that is your story. The interesting thing about this book, well, first of all, everything's interesting about it, but the interesting how it was launched. It was launched at the Parliament House receiving media coverage. I mean, most people write a book. They're like, okay, I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to write a book. And I hope someone reads it. I hope someone buys it. And you wrote a book and it was launched like a rocket. (laughs) Were you expecting that? No. (laughs) No, of course not. No. And the weird thing is that it's a, the the publishing story is a very, the universe does some funny things to us, but I ended up self-publishing. So I had an amazing, amazing agent, which had taken ages to get an agent because the publishing, to be an unknown author and write a book is hard. There's no, there's no other way. It's just hard. And so I had this amazing agent that I'd finally got and um, it had taken months and months and months. And she had worked with people like Patrick Swayze and Hillary Clinton, and she was in the States. And then I had 60 Minutes find out about, actually, I rang 60 Minutes, which is hilarious. So I just rang them. It's like, hi, I've got a story to tell. (laughs) Hello, 60 Minutes. Hi. Yeah. My name's Tiffany Johnson. You're going to want to talk to me. That's right. That's it. And um, and so I, and they were really interested. And we, I really wanted the book to be launched at the 20th anniversary of, which was last year, of the disaster. On the 27th of July, there was a huge international memorial event. And... And we were going, as a family, we were going to this international memorial event. And I had not been back to Switzerland since the accident. It was like quite a lot going on to go back. And and I went with Cassandra. We went, her brother and I and my fam- my husband and my two children, we all went together. And um, so the, all, the, the agent was like, I can't get your book published in time for... Switzerland for when you go to Switzerland I think you should self-publish and I think you need to do it now because I think it needs to be launched at the 20th anniversary I'm like okay I'll just do it so I just made it happen so I self-published which I really didn't want to do and 
in the process of that happening, I then contacted my local state member for parliament and said, hi, my name is Tiffany Tiffany Johnson and this is what I'm doing and this is my story and la, 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 la. And he's like, oh, my God. We need to have. We need to do this book launch for you. We we need to support you. Like you are part of Australia's history. So the thing is that the Swiss Canyoning disaster was the largest number of deaths of Australians on foreign soil outside of war times at the time of the event. There was a national memorial was held. There was an international memorial that was held. I met prime ministers. I met presidents. I met all manner of people. But I didn't want it back then. I didn't want. I just. I wanted to be in my shell. I didn't want to deal with it. And I, um, it was really weird when we went back to Switzerland this year. So I was, I wanted to share my story now because I thought, and that's why it's called Brave Enough Now, because it did take me 20 years to get it out there. But I just thought, I'm a normal person, just like everybody else. And if I can have gone through this, and I've gone through all the relationship stuff beforehand, and I've gone through this trauma and I've come out the other side and I've led this normal, amazing, wonderful life with all its ups and downs, then maybe if I share my story, I might be able to help someone somewhere in their life to make a positive decision or to feel brave in their life in some way because we all have to be brave every day of our life. And to find our authentic self is so important. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to get out there and I'm just going to promote it. So I rang (laughs) all these people that... I was like, what's up? what have I got to lose? Like I've already been through the worst in my life. If they say go away, I don't want to speak to you. Okay, fine. Okay, so, who, who else can I call? And, and my right. next question was about this and you've already answered it. So I'm just going to turn it into a statement if you don't mind. <laughs> Please. Um, <laughs> you found your inner voice and you began realizing the strength that you had and the power of your human spirit, which, which comes directly out of your bio. And my question was that you've already answered was, I was curious about what your first steps were into that realization and, and making a shift in your perception. And it and it's empowering others. That's what you do. You really help others become brave enough. But what you have them do is you help them realize they've always been brave yeah, this is the Just part so... I start crying. This yeah, I know. <laughs> this is the moment. <laughs> Prepare yourselves. That they've always been brave. Look at everything you've been through. You are brave. And we are all brave. We oh all make the tough choices. And we all have the, the moments where someone's been mean to us or we have felt like we haven't belonged or we've thought this isn't the right path for me or what am I doing? I hate my job. I don't like my relationship. I want to improve myself. I, the way you don't have to have gone down a flash flood to feel brave. I certainly didn't feel brave at the time, but I know being my authentic self and really believing me in that acceptance moment. That's when I was brave. Just having gone through a life of being emotionally and verbally beaten down and then to be physically beaten down on top of that. And you come back Mm -hmm. to make such an impact on the world. Like you didn't write this book so you could become famous. You wrote this book because people needed to be honored. Yeah. And And, and you were going to honor them come hell or high water. Yes, (laughs) that is the phrase I'm using. (laughs) They were going to be honored, that they were not going to be forgotten. No. And I actually dedicated my book to um, my friends that died. Oh, oh my goodness. 
So when did you start the podcast? Because you kept it going. You said, no, there's more work to be done and there's more stories to be told. And there's other people that have gone through, you know, their, you know, disastrous and things that have tried to take them down. And I have to share those stories. When did, when did you go into the, into your podcast? I'd started, I went, the media was huge with the book launch because I made those couple of phone calls and I never did get onto 60 Minutes, but I did get onto Channel 7. I was on the news. I was on the morning show in Australia. I was on so much media in Switzerland. I was famous in Switzerland. It was so crazy. I was <laughs> I was walking down the street and people were like, oh, she's the one that wrote the book. And I'm like, what's going on? It's crazy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> And um, and then we had this, we had the memorial event. This is leading into your answer to your question, but we had the memorial event and the president of Switzerland remembered me. The former president of Switzerland remembered me and he came up to me and he gave me the biggest hug. I mean, there were diplomats from all over Europe and all through Australia were there. And I'd had endorsements from the Australian government, from the Australian governor-general, the former Australian governor-general. I, like... It blew my mind. I'm just me. I'm sitting in my office downtown Melbourne, like (laughs) just a normal person. And yet here I had these people saying, thank you for sharing your story. And when I came home and there was lots of radio interviews and press and I loved doing the radio because I felt like I can really share my message. I'm very good at speaking. I love a chat. And I thought, well, I know so many people have got amazing stories and I really want to do more podcasts. How do I get on podcasts? I have no idea, but I know what I'll do. I'll just start my own. <laughs> so I, I, so I did. So I started um, recording different interviews um, about October last year and I actually launched it the beginning of April this year. And it's been amazing because I've got to share so many incredible stories. This week's episode is with a woman who is a survivor from a liver transplant who was faced with death from a chronic illness and she was given the gift of a liver and totally changed her life. So it's I love helping people see that you don't have to live in the darkness and that when you believe in yourself, magic comes your way and it spreads like wildfire for others to join in and I love that. And you're not kidding the 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 people that you I went through and preparing for this interview and of course you know read about your book and I was looking at your podcast and reading your show notes and trying to get episodes in as I was preparing and working and I mean prepare yourself prepare yourself is is what I would tell listeners before listening to your podcast. And I mean that in the best way, like you really need to be in a place because you're going to have, um, you're going to have an awakening. I mean, you're something inside of you is going to move. And, and I have to say that you're so talented and being able to continuously do that over and over and help other people to, to share theirs and, and reach that darkness to shine that light in that darkness for folks um okay we have to get to guest questions I can't keep you here all day this is going to turn into like a co-hosting thing I'm not going (laughs) to let you go 
Okay. So we have a couple of guest questions. Annette Wittenberger um, would like to know what motivates you to keep showing up? Oh, I love that question. And it's a very, it's a very strange thing. There's a few parts to that answer. I love the sun. I know that's stupid. I love, I love waking up in the morning. It can be cloudy, it can be sunny, but I love the sun. I am invigorated every day when I wake up, even on the days when I wake up and I've been unwelled with my diabetes or not and I feel like I've been hit by a truck. But when I see that sun or the light, I know that I have that light within me and that that light can spread out to everybody else and they can have that light too and that that sun that beautiful light is shining down on all of us and we all have this incredible opportunity to live our best and bravest life. And often, especially at the moment, because the autumn sun is so beautiful at my place at the moment and I my back veranda is covered in grapevines and all the grapes are changing colour because I just I love autumn. It's my favourite time of year. And the sun shines in on those grapevines and I'll be doing the dishes and I'll be like, oh, look at that, look at the sun, the sun. And my family are like, you and that sun. I'm like, yeah, but the sun. It's but the that light. makes sense. It it's makes sense you're driving your your energy from the strongest light source in our universe. Of course yeah. that makes sense. That's that's where you draw your energy. And, and I think that you answered Annette's second question, which is – um, how did you even gain the strength to keep going? Mm, that's, a, that's a really great, great question. I knew that I was always destined for more. I figured that through my recovery with my PTSD, there was no, in my mind, and I kind of, and I, I, this also tapped into that survivor's guilt, I believe, and not everybody believes this, but I believe that we are all put on this earth and that our time comes when we have done what we were meant to do. Now, some one of the girls that died was 19. She was young, or 18 maybe. She was young, really young. She was the youngest person on the trip and she was, she died. I don't know about her life. I knew her as an acquaintance but we hadn't become super friendly and I knew her family afterwards and I actually know that she had made a huge impact on her life on her community and I guess for me to be okay and let it sit okay with me that I did survive and this is to do with my survivor skill is that every single person that I knew that died had made a huge impact in the world in some way and for whatever reason, and I will never, never know, but it was their time. And when children die or when older people die, we all die at some point. We, that's the one thing that we all know that is actually going to happen to us. We will definitely die at some point. And for me to know that it was okay for me to survive, I felt like I had to live my biggest life, my best life, because I had to live it not only for them but also for me so that I could be whole and I could fulfill what I needed to fulfill so that when my time came that I actually would be taken from this earth that I would have left the impact and I would have done what I was meant to do and that's the only way that really I could face it 
Mark Dudek would like to know what your why is. Because I believe it's my beliefs that I hold so strongly to everything we've talked about that I just, it's, yeah, it's my belief system. I believe that we are all put here on this earth for a reason. And it could be to be the best janitor at the local high school. And you might talk to some kids after school and you might have had an amazing life and you might share your story and you're the one that changes their life. We're all here to make a difference. We're all here to do the best that we can and to make an impact. And it's that beliefs, my own personal beliefs, that I strive towards achieving on a daily basis that, that I think answers that question. Yes, it does. Thank you. And Twala Martin, um, she would like to know, did you ever think about just giving up and letting go? Many times. Many times. And even in that relationship, um, there were times when I thought this, the easier way would be out. And that mm-hmm. time on the plane, before I got on the plane, that was probably the biggest and the most time I thought, no, nah, I don't want to do this. I'm and so glad that you didn't let go, though. It was a bit hard to do that on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> My logistics weren't quite right. But I don't, you know, I just, I think... I think in answer to that as well that, you know, my belief, because my belief is so strong that I couldn't do, I couldn't let go, I couldn't just give up because that's not why I was left. That's not why I survived. I survived for a greater purpose and so therefore this is what I'm doing. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that. Can you tell people where that they where they can find your book? brave enough now and where they can uh, find your podcast yes so you can find my book brave enough now on amazon uh, it's available in paperback and as an ebook and it's coming out as an audiobook soon <laughs> <laughs> um and so that's really exciting and then and you can also just find me always on my website it's tiffanyjohnson.com.au and my podcast when we are brave which I just love, um, that is also on my website. But you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. So it's, you know, on iTunes and Spotify and Google Podcasts. It's on all the other smaller platforms. It's um, it's everywhere. So, um, but you can always just always go back to my website, tiffanyjohnson.com.au and all of my social links are on there. I'm on most social pages. I just am not so much into TikTok, you know. It's not really yeah. Oh, that is the topic on every podcaster. Like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about that playground over there. Um, But thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining. Um, I appreciate it. First off, thank you for agreeing to the interview. Thank you for staying um, an hour, an hour over, an hour and a half (laughs) over. No, this is no, this is absolutely amazing. Um, Please, listeners, um, go subscribe to her podcast. Uh, You're you're not going to regret it. Um, And also go check out her book and her website uh, where you can be led to the book and the podcast. Thank you so much Jacqueline, for having me. It's been wonderful connecting and inspiring and 
sharing. It's really been special. Thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you. It has on this side of the mic as well. I couldn't have asked for anything. I've been. I told you I'd been looking forward to this interview uh, for months, and now everyone can see why. Because you are such a special person, and you're such a light, and the story that you share and the story that you have and still be able to have humor and grace through it. Wow. I'm so glad you exist in this world. (laughs) Thank you. Hopefully everyone out there will feel empowered to be brave in their everyday life. That's my mission. You're doing it well. Thanks. Thanks everybody. Thank you to all the sponsors of the Embry podcast. Without you guys, we couldn't keep bringing you shows week after week. Special shout out to our co-producers, Jay Beam and T Martin. You ladies are amazing and your support means the world to me. If you'd like to be a live audience member, you can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash Anbry. You'll get to see and hear all of the interviews before they hit the airwaves, get access to Q&A and bonus content from and with our guests. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.